You're listening to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick watch and discuss a drive-in double feature, consisting of horror films, spy films, exploitation movies, erotic thrillers, sex comedies, and the like. Our ultimate goal is to determine if these two movies, randomly selected from a list of over 1,600, would make for a good drive-in double feature. We will be going through the plots of these movies in detail, so if you're concerned about spoilers, feel free to check them out before listening to us, and we'll be sure to point out if and when these films are available on various streaming services. Be sure to follow us on Twitter for any updates. That's at Podcast, no underscores, hyphens, or spaces. And let's get started. I'm your host, Patrick, and I'm joined by... Jim. Okay, Jim, before we get into our two movies today, I want to do something a little bit different. We're recording here on February 3rd. I want to get our picks locked in for Godzilla vs. Kong. Who do you got winning? <laughs> uh, Godzilla. I mean, he should win, right? He's basically a, a nuclear reactor in that series. Like, yeah, I feel like yeah. I mean, if we follow the logic of the previous two Godzilla movies, he wins. But I'm going to go out on a limb. Again, reminder, February 3rd, we're recording this. Or is it the 4th? It's the 3rd. It's the yeah. third. It's definitely the third. <laughs> Groundhog Day was yesterday. The one day a year in which Andy McDowell is relevant, which should be re- relevant for us regardless today because we are talking about Ready or Not, and she's in that. <laughs> but anyways, no, I'm going to say they're going to do a Batman v Superman thing. Godzilla and Kong, they're going to fight for a bit, and then they're going to have to unite to fight against a common enemy. I want to say it should be Ghidorah, but they already used Ghidorah, and he's dead. It's going to be Mothra? So, and, and, I feel, well, Mothra's not really a villain, but, like, Megalon is probably the next, Megalon slash Gigan, to me, are the next big Godzilla villains, but they're not super, like, well-known. So I'm going to say Mechagodzilla comes out of nowhere. I'm not sure how that's going to oh work, because God. I feel like Mechagodzilla has to be man-made, but, What if you know, the whatever. big climax that's... is that they're both fighting biplanes on the Empire State? <laughs> how great would that be? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so that's my pick. Uh, it's locked in now. Your pick is locked in. Yeah. I would kind of be happy to just see King Kong get killed. I I, I don't have anything against King Kong. <laughs> I just want to see one of these versus movies where there's a where there's a conclusive end. Every single one of them, it's either they unite to fight against somebody else, usually in the case of where they're both heroes, like Batman and Superman, or one kills the other, but then like in the last shot of the other one, it's revealed that they're still alive, or like, oh, they've got a chest burster coming out, even though the Predator seems to have won. You know, I just thought of it, Patrick, and I think maybe both Godzilla's mom and King Kong's mom were both named Martha. Or Maybe. Mothra. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, that's that's a joke going around on Twitter, and it's I've seen it from a bunch of different people. It's never not great. <laughs> Anyways, so all the Mothra talk to the side. We've got 2019's Ready or Not and 1978's, yes, 78, not 72, 1978's Game of Death. There is a 1972 Game of Death. It is an unfinished film, you know, because Bruce Lee passed away. 78 is the finished version of it, which features not that much Bruce Lee. <laughs> but yeah. we'll get into that. This this was your first time seeing Ready or Not? You had never seen yeah, it Yeah, I'd never seen Ready episode? or Not. I had only seen parts of Game of Death on on the tv but yeah i'd never seen ready or not honest honestly parts of game of death are probably all that's worth watching of game of death (laughs) but we we can get into that no ready or not i it came out just at a weird time in my life i would have loved to have seen this in the theater of course i remember seeing the trailer 
I only saw two movies in theaters in the summer of 2019. I saw Crawl in Midsummer. I probably saw this as a trailer before both of them. Definitely well, before you Midsummer. You and I were, were both in England when both of those would have come out, right? I was actually still in the United States when Ready or Not came out. So I was like basically packing to move to England for the first half of its theatrical run. And the second half of its theatrical run, I had just gotten to England and I was still familiarizing myself with Oxford. Otherwise, like I, so I, I, it just, I wasn't really able to see it either there or, you know, in the U.S. It was just bad timing for me, but I would have loved to have seen it. I was really impressed with the trailer and I rented it like as soon as it was available on digital. And, you know, I... Spoilers, I like it. <laughs> yeah, because I agree with you. I guess really before I get into it, I didn't know all of this was filmed in my neck of the woods. It was all filmed in the GTA, okay. mostly uh, in and around well, you're Casa not in Loma. The GTA, you no, I mean, yeah, I'm like a two hour drive uh, east. But yeah, it was mostly filmed in and around Casa Loma in Toronto and I think Parkdale Estate in Oshawa. I would never have pegged this for a Canadian. Oh yeah, the, you know what the the last wedding I attended was kind of near Oshawa. Mm. <laughs> I could have gone to this wedding. Yeah, you could have. Yeah. Okay, so ready or not, 2019. We get a great opening here where there's two young kids running through the hallways of this big country house, this grand stately house. One of the kids kind of throws the other kid into the wardrobe and says, hide here. And a man comes up behind him. He's been wounded. He's been shot in the gut with an arrow. And he says, please, please, Daniel, you got to help me. You got to hide me. And Daniel yells, he's in here. All these people with masks come running in and uh, and shoot this guy again and drag him away while this bride is crying. And then we get a, a, a title on the screen, 30 Years Later. And we see the beautiful, I believe her name's pronounced Samara Weaving, Yeah, right? Samara Weaving. Yeah. Now we get the beautiful Grace, played by Samara Weaving, who is uh, Hugo Weaving's uh, niece. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. yeah, I forgot about that. And her soon-to-be husband, Alex, played by a fellow named Mark O'Brien. I don't think I've seen him in anything. Um, uh, yeah, he didn't look familiar to me either. They're getting prepared to get married. It's it's the day of their wedding. And I guess I should just say here to her, her husband, Alex, was the younger of the two kids that I just mentioned uh, from the opening. And Daniel, as an adult, is played by Adam Brody. It's a name I'm familiar with. I don't actually know what he's famous for. I know he's in Scream 4, but that's like a really small role. That's not why he's famous. <laughs> he's not like the brother of Adrian Brody or anything, is he? No, I, he's too normal looking. <laughs> that's that's harsh. <laughs> so as you just mentioned, Daniel, the older brother, he comes in on Alex and, and Grace while they're kind of just talking before they have to go out and do some wedding day photo shoots. This is when you kind of realize, just through the way that the scenes are set up, that their family is stinking rich. Yeah. And eventually, when they do move outside, uh, we're introduced to the rest of the family. Andy McDowell plays Becky, who is the wife of the patriarch of the Le Domas family, whose name is Tony. I don't remember who plays him, but I like the actor. They're filthy rich, and they're all a little eccentric, and there's a woman kind of off to the corner, Aunt Helene. Uh, oh yeah, looks, she's the like visually she just looks weird and creepy. Yeah, <laughs> she looks yeah, like a horror movie character. Yeah, she's she's constantly grimacing. Yeah, she looks very disapprovingly on Grace. Yes. And yeah. Grace, she mentions she doesn't think the family likes her. She mentions that his alcoholic brother Daniel keeps hitting on her or something. So that's yeah. how we learn Daniel's an alcoholic because we see yeah. a lot of that later. She has a conversation with Annie McDowell, who, being originally an outsider to the family, should be able to relate to Grace a lot here. She says, like, you know, I was, like, in your situation, you know, I didn't come from a lot of wealth. A lot of this stuff was weird to me, too. But she, but Grace doesn't think she likes her, really, or that her dad approves. Mm-hmm. 
it's not really that important to the story, but it also stems from the fact that she is definitely not from this world of, of luxury. She was a uh, um, she was given up for adoption, and she was raised. I would by, say that's uh, super important for the story. I mean, the adoption part specifically, no, but it, it it just shows her her willingness to try to conform to this strange family so that they can accept her and she will be accepted by them. Yeah. But the two get married. Alex and Grace get married. Uh, they have a lovely wedding and a lovely kiss out in the backyard. But there's a catch to their wedding day here. At the end of the day, around midnight, to be fully accepted into the family, Grace has to play a game. Every marriage in the family does this. So. Exactly. Every new addition to the family, excluding, I guess, kids born within the family, have to be accepted into the family this way. Alex and Grace and the rest of the family move down to the Le Domas games room where Tony Le Domas kind of regales the family, but more specifically Grace, with the story of how they made their fortune, which is a bit of a shady story. A bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's definitely some devil stuff. Well, we, ha- we don't get devil No, you're right. We, early we get kind on. Of supernaturally... we, don't, we don't get, yeah. Watching this for the first time, and I genuinely didn't know exactly where this story went. I didn't really get the impression that there was going to be any kind of supernatural element. I thought these people were just crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely at this point in the movie, I thought these people were just crazy. But, you know, I'm not going to spoil it, really. But the further we get, the more you realize, oh, it's it's, it's like a ritual that they perform. It's a rite. Well, it it goes back and forth between crazy and supernatural, actually, which is what I really like yeah, about or, the movie. Or maybe it goes back and forth between stupid and supernatural. Like they're all just inept. Oh yeah, there's a, there's a lot of ineptitude here, and I, I like this. This is something we haven't done too many horror comedies so far. And this, if this isn't clear, this is a horror comedy so far. It's been comedy because you know we haven't mm-hmm. had our. Well, I guess we had that opening scene come to think of it. But, like, horror comedy as a genre is is something I find really, really frustrating because I feel like 9 out of 10 horror comedies are really just comedies with violence. They don't yeah. really seem to try to be scaring you or to be tense. It, it's just, like, comedies with a lot of blood or something, yeah. you know? Yeah, And this movie, I can't say it's really all that scary, but it is very tense and it is very funny and and i think the balance of tones is re- done really really well here oh absolutely and yeah it bothers me that more horror comedies are not like this i i like that the main character in the situation that she is about to go through that we'll get into i like that she's playing it straight she'll have like a sarcastic line here or there but nothing ever over the top goofy the goofiness Mm -hmm. comes more from the ineptitude that you mentioned which is pretty darn funny oh it's great yeah but I should just give a quick rundown, I guess, maybe of the family members, uh, just very briefly. Well, yeah, and we meet two more of them in this scene. They couldn't make yes. it to the actual wedding earlier. Yeah, so the two that we meet in this scene are Alex and Daniel's uh, sister, who I think is older than them, and she's a bit of a cokehead and a prescription painkiller taker. Yeah, we see uh, the pills later, there. too. We see, yeah, we see and, the coke in this scene. We see the pills later. And uh, she's married to a guy named Fitch, who's just an idiot. Uh, he's who's, funny. Who's he's probably the funniest one. He's great. In, and in my, this movie the first me. line out of his mouth is one of my favorites in the movie. Just because I think it's so ridiculous. He comes into this room. He goes, sorry, we're late. Would have loved to see the wedding, but we couldn't get our regular charter out of De Gaulle. And, you know, I'm just not flying. <laughs> I'm just not. Uh, what do you say? I'm not flying. Um, uh, Coach, probably. Probably something like that. Yeah, or something like that. We're like, oh, I'm not flying like the regular airlines anymore. You know how it is. It's like, OK, yeah, <laughs> he's great. And that's that's an important line to note, too, because he married in so he 
Yeah. In theory, we don't really learn much about his backstory, but in theory, he did not come from super wealth. Mm-hmm. So already, like, and this is important to the story, we don't really know it yet, but already you can kind of see how wealth is changing people that didn't come from it. Because especially with Daniel's wife, mm-hmm. you see Charity. that the ones who marry into wealth are maybe even more despicable than the ones that are that are from wealth originally. Yeah, well, we get this weird line that I'm just going to bring up now because I'm going to skip over it later or forget about it later. Daniel accuses her of being a monster in her in, in her own right. He said, you know, when I told you about this thing, you were excited about it. You couldn't wait to join the family. And she says something along the lines of, well, you know where I came from and what I had to do. I'd rather die than lose all of this. Yeah. I love is, that scene. That, that might yeah. be my favorite scene in the movie. Oh, it's, it's great. great. But anyways, yes. So to get back into this thing, Tony Ladomas gathers the family in the games room and regales them with this story of how they got their wealth. And how they got it was strange. His great-grandfather was a merchant seaman, and he met this guy named LaBelle on a ship crossing the Atlantic or something. They were playing cards, and they got to talking, and they both kind of bonded over how, how much they liked card games. Mr. LaBelle gave Le Domas, he gave him this box, this puzzle box. He said, look, if you can figure out this puzzle box before we make land, I will financially support all of your endeavors. Not to spoil much, but next episode, we've also got puzzle boxes. Oh my gosh. People in the know will know what that's about. Victor Ledomas solves this puzzle box, and with the backing of LaBelle, they found this card shop during the Civil War or something like that. And as And they basically became Parker Brothers or Milton Bradley. They're a huge they're a gaming empire. Daniel says they prefer the term Dominion at one point. They're just like this huge I guess at this point in twenty nineteen, this is old money but you know Mm -hmm. early 20th century i guess they're new money but they're they're an old money family the strange thing about this old money family is that every time they add a new member of the family they have to do this sort of games ritual where they sit around the table and they pass this puzzle box around and then the new initiate to the family has to draw a card out of the puzzle box and according to tony mr labelle will tell us what we have to play so when Grace draws her card, she kind of giggles. Aunt Helene is like, tell us what it says, child. She says, oh, ha ha ha, it's hide and seek. Are we really going to play that? And you kind of see Tony's, well, not kind of see, you see Tony's face, Daniel's face, Alex's and Becky's face all kind of drop. The mood of this yeah. room just changes for everyone but Grace because she has no idea what's happening. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. And, and this is when you... Realize, I mean, it was easy enough to see coming, but this is when the audience really realizes that, uh uh-oh, this is the thing that they were playing at the beginning of the movie. They all agree to play hide-and-seek. Alex and Daniel aren't too happy about it, and Andy McDowell doesn't seem to be that happy about it either, which will change. (laughs) Right, Uh, and Grace learns that for her to win, she has to stay hidden until dawn, basically. Yeah, well, there's this great little scene here, too, where, you know, Tony takes Grace out of the room to give her a quick rundown of how this works. She goes, you know, am I really going to have to hide? He goes, yeah, you have 100 seconds to hide, and then we're going to come and look for you. We can't use the house security cameras because we have to play the game like it would have been played in grandfather's time, and you can win by hiding till morning. And she's kind of saying, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do that. Okay, thanks. Well, she, she When she actually does hide, she gives up, like, a minute oh, into yeah, it. She's quickly, just like, ah, oh, yeah. this is boring. We know also from trailers and stuff that Tony has omitted the most important part of this, is that when they find her, they are going to kill her. Specifically in a ritual. Yes. We can talk about this later if we want to. It's probably not worth dwelling on. But I think if they just kill her when she's, like, hiding, I think that still works for 
the, I, I don't think Perhaps. I don't know. It doesn't I, matter. I, I think, Maybe it point, has to be in a ritual. I know at they one point want they her. said they need her for the ritual. Yeah, but so. I th- but again, I think that might just be their like tradition thing. I, I don't know if that's if there's really merit to that because <laughs> some of the funniest stuff in this movie is when they're kind of picking and choosing which traditions they have to live by and which they <laughs> yeah. which they don't. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. That's that's hilarious. That's yeah. So uh, Tony returns into the games room with the rest of the family, and they start gearing up with like crossbows and, and an little, awesome little song pistols. playing on a yeah. phonograph. Yeah, it was this hide-and-seek, this spooky song. While the family's gearing up and Alex is sitting out, Grace is running upstairs to hide. And she's taking it very, you know, she's acting pretty goofy. She's probably had a bit of champagne, you know. uh, She's still wearing her wedding dress. (laughs) Yeah, and she crawls herself into a a dumbwaiter. Then we get this great action shot of the whole family all geared up, and Aunt Aline's got this axe. Yeah, Andy McDowell's got a bow and arrow. Fitch has a crossbow. Yeah. Yeah, Aunt Aline with the axe. That's a great image. Most people have, like, old, like, hundred-year-old guns. The family starts searching the mansion. Grace gives up pretty quickly. She's like, I'm not hiding in this dumb waiter all night. It's my wedding night. Like, this is ridiculous. So she gets out and starts roaming the mansion. Meanwhile, Alex, who had decided to stay in the games room, has slipped out through a servant's door. Grace is kind of moving along when a hand comes out and grabs her. Luckily for her, it's Alex. And he's trying to explain to her that this game isn't just a game, that it's this terrifying thing where she's going to be murdered. She's going to be hunted down and murdered. But luckily for her, and unluckily for a nanny who was watching... Well, also, also uh, luckily luckily for him, because he doesn't have to do that much explaining, because they exactly. see it pretty, <laughs> yeah. pretty explicitly. Yeah. This nanny who was looking after Fitch and Emily's kids had fallen asleep reading a book. One of her kids left the room, and she went looking for him, went into the newlyweds room where they were just hiding out. And as she realized that the kid wasn't in there, she didn't see either Grace or Alex, she turns to leave, and bang! Gets shot right in the face. Like, right in the fucking face. And she hits the deck. (laughs) And Emily, you can hear her out of frame screaming, Oh, Daddy, Daddy, I got her. Look, I got her. Oh, come on, I got her. Grace peers around the bed, and she sees this half-dead poor nanny with, like, part of her head missing and her brain showing. She's covered in blood. She's spluttering blood all over the carpet. And this is when she realizes, Oh, shit, this isn't a funny, cute hide-and-seek game. This is a murderous nightmare. Yeah, and this is when a bunch of characters gather, and (laughs) there's like a line, I I can't remember who says it, but someone's like, oh, not her, she was my favorite, (laughs) and they all get really mad at, um, is it Emily? Is that her name? And Tony was like, first of all, you shouldn't be aiming at the head, because we want her maimed, because we need her for the ritual. Mm-hmm. They flip a coin to see who has to carry her and stuff like that because they're <laughs> just getting rid of the body at this point. I didn't realize it on the first watch, but like uh, when they flip the coin and call heads or tails, it's it's literally heads or tails. Like you grab her by the yes, yeah, so whoever has to carry <laughs> her from by the, the head or from the legs. Grace is you know understandably shocked as the family moves off with this dying nanny slash dead nanny. And Alex rushes her into some servants' corridors behind the hallways. And this is where we learn that this isn't just a game for the family, that they believe they're going to have to kill Grace before dawn or else everybody dies. Alex calls it just this crazy superstition, but they really believe in it. Grace is understandably getting upset with Alex. She's like, how come you didn't tell me that this is a possibility? He goes, yeah, and he's like, look, he goes, you could have, he's like, out of all the cards you could have picked, you picked the one bad card. And he he also said, you know, when she's like, well, why didn't you tell me? And he's like, well, if I would have told you this, you would have left. And he has some line about how they, like, can't, eloping doesn't work, or maybe the curse would still happen if they elope. Yeah, well, he doesn't really believe in the curse You have to get married fully. on the grounds and in the house or yes. something. And... 
and and he also said that like if I didn't propose, you would have left me. So it's like yeah. I was, at a, and it's like okay, it's kind of understandable. I'm still 100 percent on Grace's side, but this is kind of oh, understandable. Yeah. Also, I guess this is the point when we realize that there's kind of this is definitely sinister, but there's something more behind it because he. This is when we first start really hearing about the ritual, other than Tony coming into the room after the nanny's been killed. Yeah. But there might be something vaguely satanic or something going on, something supernatural, not just a house full of crazy people. Alex tells Grace, look, I have to leave you. I have to unlock all the doors and windows because all the doors and windows have been locked by this system. So I got to get there. You make your way to the servant's kitchen and then go out the back door and just run, just leave. And she's putting on some sneakers. Alex leaves her. She gets to the end of the hallway and uh uh-oh, there's two doors. He didn't tell her which door to go through. So we get also this great scene here I really like where you get this cut to the family carrying this dead nanny. And Antoline is saying something like, oh, we, we haven't seen Grace yet. Uh, we've checked all over the mansion. Nobody's seen her. And as she says that, you can see the door behind her open up. And they all turn their flashlights, their lanterns, actually. And there's Grace standing there in her ripped white wedding dress. <laughs> Just kind of in the middle of the hallway. <laughs> Emily comes out from another door and starts shooting, and she almost hits the family. None of these people know what they're doing with these weapons. They really don't. Aunt Helene does. Mm -hmm. She can handle that axe. She's, like, the only one. I should also point out, too, that, like, this hide-and-seek, this game of death, as it were. Yeah, that's—I was thinking about that earlier. It's like, the the title of our next movie could easily be the title of this movie. That's just a weird coincidence. I I forgot to make this joke. I was going to say, Patrick, I think what you meant to say was we watched A Game of Death and then a Bruce Lee movie. (laughs) Yeah, like— Well, but but then it's only kind of a Bruce Lee movie, so the joke doesn't work. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Shucks. (laughs) You've got to, like, put an asterisk on Bruce Lee in Game (laughs) of Death. Yeah, and then, like, link it to a Wikipedia page or something. (laughs) (laughs) Bela Lugosi in Plan 9. It's it's better than that. It's better than that. But there are some Ed Wood-like practices in that movie. (laughs) I forgot to mention earlier, we get a quick little scene where Andy McDowell, where Fitch asks Becky, he's like, you know, how long does this usually take? And she says, there's nothing usual about this. This game has only happened one other time since I joined the family. And then, again, we realize, oh, that was the beginning and that was Aunt Helene was the wife. Was the, yes, was she was the bride. Was we learn that more clearly later. But she takes, adds, she takes these games the most seriously, even though she had her husband killed by them. So We can also chalk up their ineptitude to only doing this, you know, maybe twice every 60 years or something. Grace runs from the family and hides in the billiards room. And as she's deciding what to do, Daniel walks in says i just came here to get a drink and he reaches yeah, like, a and bottle of yeah she's on the terrified table. too oh yeah and you know he's telling grace he's like you know i'm gonna have to call them i don't like this situation i hate it i don't want you to die but i have to call them and, you know grace is trying to plead with him but he says look i'll give you a 10 second head start so he really gives her more like a 30 second head start he sits down pours a well, drink it, and there's counting. a weird ed- there's a weird edit here because he goes like one one thousand uh-huh. Two one thousand, two and a half one thousand, and so it's like okay when when he starts doing the half thousands, it's like okay he's going to give her like thirty seconds, but it cuts to him calling like right after yeah. the two and a half thousand. <laughs> so yeah. I don't yeah. know if he gave her three seconds or, or, or forty, <laughs> or it's it's just a little bit of a strange edit, I think. Yeah, Grace is already long gone when he calls, and Charity shows up and starts kind of berating Daniel. She's like, "You're a fucking drunk piece of shit." And this is where we learn that, you know, Charity was more than happy to join this strange cultish family. And <laughs> one of my favorite scenes, the rest of the family shows up. <laughs> uh, 
the rest of oh, the yeah, family Fitch, shows Fitch, up. Fitch hasn't been able to figure out his crossbow. Uh, yeah, crossbow. The whole time. He's so like he sitting around it. watching like YouTube videos on how to use a crossbow. Yeah. <laughs> so he yeah. gives it over to his wife, Emily. Yeah, because she lost her gun. But even before that, it's great because she goes, oh, I lost my gun again. Oh, daddy. Oh, I'm so bad at this. I'm so stupid. He's like, no, you're not, sweetie. Come here. Come here. No, you're doing just fine. And then Fitch hands her. He's like, here, you can take my crossbow. She goes, thanks. And as soon as she holds it, she like shoots it just as this other maid comes into the room to tell them that she just saw Grace running and she gets shot right in the mouth. And then Emily starts weeping again. Oh, I'm so, why am I so bad at this? <laughs> and the family's like trying to console her as this woman is bleeding to death on the floor. And then there's also this question too that I always thought was funny. <laughs> does the help count? You know, if we kill if we kill a maid, is the ritual yeah, over? Yeah, like, does yeah. it count? <laughs> yeah, that probably comes up with the first uh, with the first servant that's killed. But yeah, yeah exactly. That's a, yeah. That's a funny he, little line. Yeah, I think because I think Aunt Helene goes, "No, they don't count. Why does everybody keep asking that?" Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and then this is Anne Helene's best moment, too, because she's trying to give, like, a little speech about what they need to do. But there's, like, constant groaning from the dying maid. When she when she keeps get, getting interrupted by, the, like, the groaning, she just goes and beheads the person just to make sure she's dead. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, it's brutal. Well, after we get the family kind of trying to figure out what to do, they decide to turn on the security cameras. <laughs> and yeah, like, and this is when they joke about which which uh, traditions are actually traditions or which are... Well, I guess they don't joke about it, but this is when they discuss <laughs> which traditions are actually traditions or which are just like, oh, this is just because, you know, our great-grandfather didn't have access to security cameras, but they do insist on using the old-timey weapons still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> Tony's like, no, that's tradition. That can't change. <laughs> so they decide... So I, a few members of the family decide to make their way to the security camera room to turn on all the cameras. While the well, they the notice family. they're on, and so they figure Alex is in there. Meanwhile, Grace has made her way to the servant's kitchen, but she has outfitted herself with a big old-timey rifle, like an, like an elephant gun almost, and these giant rounds. She's trying to leave through the the, uh, the servant kitchen's door, but the doors still aren't unlocked yet because Alex is still having a problem with the system. And then the head butler fellow walks in. He's the only servant left at this point. I think of one more woman who dies shortly after this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She gets crushed by a dumb waiter. Oh, no, you're right. I, I There is a line saying like, oh, there's only one more, but it must be just referring to those three women that all, yeah. I guess, have the same job. This guy's job is different. No, you're right. Yeah. This guy's hilarious. He The, oh, the entire great. time he's doing, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but the entire time he's like humming along to the 1812 orchestra, he's he's obsessed with that for some reason. It comes yeah. back later in the movie too. Yeah. And like I said, I don't know if this is intentional, but as someone who's at least somewhat into classical music, I look at this guy, this butler, he's not independently wealthy. He's not mm-hmm. like this family. And yet he probably lives in the house. He kind of kind of lives like he's wealthy in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he serves these other people, but they treat him well. But this is such a clever thing because like, you know, high society classical music, right? The 1812 Orchestra is this is the like epitome of like what someone who doesn't know anything about classical music would think is like incredible music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah absolutely. it's it's like because it's like a classic it's well remembered but it is it's <laughs> it's, it's not chopin it. or anything it's not yeah, tchaikovsky yeah, yeah. it's well it's i mean 
it literally is. It literally is, but it's not the good Tchaikovsky. Yeah, but <laughs> no, right, it, right. it is. I, I it's caught like myself. possibly one of the most famous classical pieces. Ever. Yeah, but it's not. It's not that good. We we get a no, little exactly. bit of um, uh, Beethoven's Ninth earlier in this movie, and that's an incredible piece of music. It's a lot better than this. I also like the way he's hum- like he's humming it too. He's like ba 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 ba. And you're like, okay. Oh yeah, he's, he's it's an enthusiastic performance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's throwing his hands all over the place. So he comes into the kitchen to make some tea. Classic butler move, am I right? And Grace has to hide behind the island in the kitchen. Then there's this whole issue where Alex upstairs unlocks all the doors and windows just as his dad and older brother burst in and incapacitate Alex. Grace tries to get out through the servant's door but realizes all the ammo that she has for this gun is fake. But no worries, she just smashes a piping hot pot of tea over his face and runs. And then this is when the other, the last female servant gets crushed by the dumbwaiter because Grace tries to get back in it to hide. And this woman goes, I'm not even a real, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, I'm not maid. even a real I'm, maid. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Ladoma's just likes the way I dance. <laughs> Yeah, and then she starts calling for the family to tell her to tell them that Grace is here, and then she accidentally gets crushed to death by the dumbwaiter. <laughs> yeah, it's it's I, I would say it's eighty percent accidental. I think there's twenty percent intent there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't think Grace is too upset that she dies. No, I'll no, I don't think way. so either. Grace has to kind of run away again, but Alex, who's been knocked out by his dad and brother, is tied to the bed, and and we kind of get this. I don't really want to call it like like a scene of exposition i guess but it, it, it is it's expository dialogue, i, I like word. how the exposition is delivered in this movie it's a lot yes. of the conversations between it's usually daniel it's daniel and his wife or somebody and it's like you learn a little bit more in the background about yeah. this tradition about this ritual and this is when we learn about Alex is in this this part I'm, I'm actually not a huge fan of I, I don't necessarily know why this is in the story but Alex is the prodigal son right he um mm-hmm. he left and eventually he came back or he came back when he was going to get married I guess but Helene thinks that he's like the chosen one the one who will like continue the family legacy all because as a boy he actually saw Mr. LaBelle, the guy that helped out the family in the past and that they're yeah. doing all this crap to appease now. And then <laughs> there's a line, I can't remember who says it, but there's something like, oh, he was just a kid. He might have been making that up. But it's like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. This is like the one part of the plot that I'm just like, eh, not really into. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. And, and Grace overhears it, and she's, like, reacting to it as if this is, like, this super important thing. When really, yeah. if, if I'm Grace in that situation, I overhear that, and I just shrug and go, oh, that's weird, and continue moving on, you know? Exactly, yeah. I agree with you. It's It might be my least favorite scene. It's, for me, it's not the scene so much as just, like, this plot point just doesn't yeah, yeah. seem all that important, doesn't really go anywhere. You can you kind of say... Out kind of say it foreshadows the ending a little bit but i'm also not sure this that's something that needed to be foreshadowed i Mm. you know i don't know so grace upon hearing this information jumps i guess off the windowsill because she's gonna try to hide somewhere outside the house now that she's finally out of the house she starts running through the woods and there's somebody with a flashlight approaching so she runs to this barn which is full of goats which i didn't get on the first watch i didn't really understand (laughs) <laughs> that they were all sacrificial goats. Yeah, they, they mentioned that they that sacrifice goats all the time. I <laughs> yeah, guess. yeah. On the second watch, I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> 
But yeah, so she hides in this in this barn, and uh, the person with the flashlight comes in and is slowly cre- creeping up to one of the last stalls that she's hiding in, and it turns out it's the uh, kid who woke up. Grace goes, Georgie? This is going to sound crazy, and she stands up to go to talk to him, and he pulls out Emily's little pistol, and he shoots her right in the hand, and it goes right through her hand. And this, I laughed out loud at this. I love it. I love when movies do this. And Grace just fucking right hooks him right in the face. <laughs> And knocks him out cold. I love it. <laughs> and then as she goes to pick up the pistol, I think, I think it's the pistol she goes to pick up, a goat scares her and she falls backwards through some rickety wooden doors covering a cellar. But it's really more like a pit. And she just lands on a pile of rotting goat corpses. And the stench is clearly overwhelming. She turns and she vomits. And she looks next to her and there's the body of Helene's husband. This scene is is hard to watch. Like at this point of the movie, you you already feel bad for her, but then she gets oh, shot yeah, through the hand, falls into this rotting, festering pit. She's covered in goop, and her hand is bleeding profusely. And she tries to climb out of the pit on this rickety ladder, which is slowly breaking, rung by rung. And she eventually grabs the the sill of the of these cellar doors, I guess you could call them. And she's hanging there. She can't get quite a, a good enough grip. So she throws her hand with a hole in it up and she lands it <laughs> right on a nail. And so she screams. And Samara Weaving has this great scream, too. I want to point out. Oh, yeah. It like scream. naturally reverberates or whatever. Yeah. It's like a... Yeah. Also, I... <laughs> This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. But on the IMDb trivia, you might have seen this too. It, you know, IMDb trivia, some of it's interesting, some of it isn't. It's how it is with everything. <laughs> One of the things they have under actor trademarks, you know, they say Samara Weaving screams. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a, that's a, that, that's her trademark. That is like, so stupid. It is so, is so stupid. Like, like if stupid. I want, like, an actor, if I want, like, a, let's say, like, a director trademark or something, I'm going to be like, okay... This director has uses the number 13 a lot in his movies. So if you look at the numbers on the license plate, this is number 13 or something like, okay, if that pops up in a lot of movies, like, okay, maybe Samara Weaving screams in a lot of movies, but it's like, that's not like the actor trademark so much as it's it's the character here. It's it's part yeah. of the plot. Yeah. <laughs> Samara so Weaving, great scream. <laughs> she is a Screams. great screamer, though. We'll, we'll, we'll give her that. But yeah, so she pulls herself out of this pit with, I guess, kind of locking her holy hand (laughs) onto this nail to help pull her out. And again, at this point, you feel terrible for her. And she kind of bandages herself with this (laughs) dirty, disgusting piece of wedding dress, which is now not no longer white, more of a gray. Uh, She starts running, uh, heading towards a boundary line of the estate where (laughs) I like this uh, scene, too, (laughs) where Charity sees her. She goes, I've got you now, bitch. And she puts out her cigarette and grabs this dumb fucking crossbow launcher thing and just completely whiffs it. Yeah, like off by like 40 yards. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Easy. Great. Easy. But uh, she goes inside the house to tell the rest of the family and sees the butler. And she says, uh, I've just spotted her. She's heading towards the north fence. And the butler's got a burnt face now. Oh, yeah, point. it looks terrible. Grace, over at the north fence now, she sees a car approaching and she can't pull herself over the fence. But there's there's a bar in the fence that has been bent. So she kind of breaks it off and squeezes through the fence to get out to this road. And f- from that scene, we cut back to Grace, who is cutting her back open. And it's just disgusting pulling herself through this fence and there's this sharp fleur-de-lis or something on the fence that is just like slicing her back right open she gets out to the road to this car and she's like please help stop stop and the guy rolls his window down because get the fuck out of the road (laughs) and she yells something like fucking rich people (laughs) which is great she goes on quite a rant it goes on for a while (laughs) i couldn't make out most of the words i feel like 
fucking tiny dick licker cocksucker. <laughs> I loved it. It was great. So she runs off into the woods across the street. The butler spots her and is going out to find her. And he eventually finds her in this field. He runs her down. Well, he doesn't run her over, but he runs her down with his car. And he hops out of the car and she chokes him out. Uh, And you think she has strangled him to death. But as she drives away in his car, he stands back up and grabs this gun. Now, this is the one scene of the movie I like. It's funny, but I don't really like. And she's speeding down the road uh, in the butler's car as she calls what is essentially OnStar. Yeah. And she says, you know, can you call the cops? And there's a bit of funny back and forth here with the guy on the other end of this OnStar thing. And he says, oh, actually, this car has been reported stolen. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to just cut the engine, shut it off. And as soon as she stopped, the butler runs up and grabs her and tranquilizes her. Grace wakes up in the back of the car to the butler listening to some more classical music. And, you know, uh, he's he's it's, it's he's the, hitting a the, crescendo. Yes, it's the <laughs> climax of the 1812 overture. He himself is hitting quite a high as he's driving back. He's he's on a high. Uh, he's, I guess, like FaceTiming with the family who then see Grace waking up in the back seat. <laughs> Tony's like yelling at him. He's like, turn around. Turn that turn fucking, fucking music down, music you down. idiot. <laughs> Grace winds up and just starts kicking the butler in the face and he drives the car off the road, killing himself. It flips. Yeah. Daniel shows up in the middle of the woods as Grace is climbing out of the car. There's a bit of a back and forth, which I don't think is too important, but he knocks her out. Actually, I guess it is important. He says, um, I'm going to take you back. She goes, come on, Daniel, you're better than this. And he said, no, if there's anybody that was going to save you, it would have been Alex. And he knocks her out with the butt of his rifle. Tony's also out there. So the two of them take her back to the house, set her up for this ritual. We next see Grace tied to like this table with a pentagram on it. <laughs> and everybody's wearing robes. They're chanting around the table and they're passing like this, almost like communion wine or something around. You know, I mean, it's not communion wine, but anyways, they're passing this wine around and all taking sips from it. And just as Tony's about to stab Grace... He's also about to say say hail Satan, but he can't yeah, quite yeah, get that's it. Yeah, he's about so to this say is our first... Satan. This scene is like our first Satan scene, our first yeah. like... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was it was alluded to throughout the movie that this was all vaguely satanic, but this is when you really get all the satan stuff. But you're right, just as he's about to say, Hail Satan, he stops and he just vomits this wine back up. It looks like he's vomiting blood. And then the rest of the family start to vomit. And we see Daniel, who isn't vomiting, and he's put, uh, what was it, hydrochloric acid <laughs> in the wine. So he unties Grace and, you know, she says something along the lines of, are they all going to die? He goes, no, it's just going to make them shit weird for a week, but they're going to be fine. As they're hiding and as as Daniel's trying to get her out of the house, he doesn't care if this the family will die thing is true or not. Uh, he just wants to save Grace because she's a good person. I think he doesn't really believe it too deep yeah, down. Yeah, You also get that, like, Emily doesn't believe it. Fitch doesn't believe it. Alex seemingly doesn't believe it. Yeah, yeah. Fitch Fitch doesn't believe it, but he's happy to just play along for sure. But as Daniel is helping Grace escape, Charity confronts them both and ultimately shoots Daniel right in the neck. And he drops to the ground and Grace knocks Charity out with the butt of this pistol. And I'm not entirely sure where she's running at this point, but she runs away and Andy McDowell corners her in, in this study and they fight. But... What is so brutal about this, because I, I really like Andy McDowell, but what's so brutal about this is that Andy McDowell was choking her out, saying like, oh, you know, I really liked you, and I thought you were going to be great in this family, but you don't deserve a family. And, you know, she's being really mean at the end, and then Grace gets a hold of Mr. LaBelle's card box and just starts caving Andy McDowell's head in. And while this is going on, Alex has already come downstairs. I, imagine if Bill Murray did this in one of the <laughs> Groundhog Day scenarios where he gets to clock. relive. He just, <laughs> one of his days ends with him getting arrested for murder when he's just oh, caving no. her head in. Uh, 
Alex has freed himself, and he sees that uh, Daniel. He comes downstairs and sees that Daniel's dying in a pool of his own blood. And Daniel dies essentially in his arms. He's on the floor. He doesn't know that Daniel helped Grace, helped save yeah. Grace. For all he knows, Grace might have killed him. He doesn't yeah. really know. When and then we see Alex make his way to the room where Grace is, who's still kind of caving Andy McDowell's head in, his mom's head in. Alex stops her and there's kind of like this really sad heartfelt thing where Alex is still pretty clean he has some some of his brother's blood on his hands but he's he's in very clean clothes and you see Grace who's just beaten to hell she's covered in cuts and mud and old sheep gunk and she's got a hole in her hand maybe two and she's got a big cut in her back and her white wedding dress is now like like a black and gray Alex says you know you're not going to be with me after all of this are you she kind of doesn't really answer, but you can tell she's not going to be. Yeah, she moves away from him when yeah, he moves Yeah, she backs away her. from him. And, and and she's sorry because, you know, at one point she really did love him. And he lovingly puts one of his hands on her, on the side of her head. And then he puts his other hand on the side of her head and just starts squeezing. Alex becomes a real dick. He becomes the bad guy. And he and his family tie Grace back up to this pentagram table. They're about to perform the ritual. He's going to actually stab Grace in the face. And somehow she she, she kind of I think it's supposed free. to be the heart. Yeah, you're probably right. But just the last second, right before he's about to stab her, as they're all chanting, Hail Satan, Grace kind of squeezes Aunt Helene's hand. And she kind of wriggles free and she gets stabbed in the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And as she hops off the table and pulls the knife out and is standing looking at the whole family, the sun comes up. This is the best Samara we- weaving scream too when she when she's backing up and and has the knife pulled out. It, this is pretty intense. It's not a fearful scream. It's a like like back away from me scream. It, it's an insane scream. Really, it's it's great. Yeah, and and she looks great too. Again, she's all battered and bloody, and she's screaming. She's holding this knife. She survived until un, un, until the morning light. And Aunt Helene opens the blinds. All the sunlight comes in, and all the family kind of stops. And they're expecting something to happen, but. Nothing happens. And they realize, oh shit, this was all just a big joke. There was never anything bad that would happen if if this ritual wasn't carried out. It was just a big fucking joke. At one point, I think Fitch makes the comment. He goes, well, what are we going to do with her? Because, you know, you have Grace, who's who's witnessed all this, and they've been trying to murder her all night long. They kind of collectively decide to kill her anyways. Aunt Helene grabs her axe, and just as she's about to hit Grace with it, boom, she just explodes. <laughs> There's blood and guts all over the room, and the whole family realizes, well, really oh, shit. blood. I mean, it's implied guts, but I yeah, think yeah. really all you see is the blood, and the blood just splashes on other characters and stuff. It's great, yeah. And I think Fitch turns to Tony and goes, oh, man, I think you were right. And then he explodes. <laughs> and Emily and the kids run out of the room, and they explode in the hallway. You don't get to see them, but you can see yeah, their matter fly past. I like that they killed the kids. And I guess, yeah. you know, I guess you don't want to see the kids die on screen. But, like, I mean, they might as well. You see their blood end up on screen. And, and they're actually, this is kind of covered, too, or at least in regards to one of the kids. Because there's a scene when, oh, yes. when Daniel and Charity are getting rid of the dead bodies the maids the beheaded maids and stuff in that goat stable yeah daniel has some lines about like uh, you know this is like we 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 deserve this like we yeah we deserve terrible people where we deserve to die and then charity's like but my kids don't and then they find georgie and they're like what are you doing here and he's like oh i tried to shoot her and he's like well why, why would you try to do that 
He's like, oh, it's what you all were trying to do. And then it's like, then you kind of realize maybe the kids do deserve to die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's, yeah. It makes you feel not so bad about the ending when the, when the kids blow up into blood and guts. No, I, I totally agree. Although technically it was just one kid. Maybe the other kid was the, the nicest kid you've ever met. You, you don't <laughs> yeah. know. Maybe he was like saving stray animals and stuff, you know? <laughs> Oh, he was saving stray goats, but he was just bringing their, them there. <laughs> but yeah, so one by one, the family or the surviving family members explode. And uh, that just leaves Grace and Alex in the in the room together. And Alex is trying to apologize. She's like, oh, honey, honey, you know, I, you know, I wasn't going to actually do it. You know, and look, Mr. LaBelle has saved me. You know, I'm not going to die. And this He's given great... me a second chance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And this great line. I love Samara Weaving's acting. Because it's great. Because she's kind of snorting uh, with laughter as, as everybody's exploding around her. And as she's oh, yeah. Her reactions to that is just great. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and you you feel for her, too, because this woman has gone through hell. Oh, yeah. And when this happens, like, it, what's happening is horrific. But she's just like, she's thinking, like, oh, finally, I got a fucking break. You know? Yeah. yeah. And she takes, yeah, and this best, this like, as Alex keeps on approaching her, she takes her ring off and goes, Alex, honey. I want a divorce. And she has the best look on her face when she says it, and she flicks the ring at him, and as soon as the ring hits him, he explodes. <laughs> and then, uh, I, you know, we get this supernatural element. Mr. LaBelle appears in his chair for a minute. Yeah, we see Mr. LaBelle for, like, one second, maybe not even a full second. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Grace makes her way outside and uh, steals Andy McDowell's cigarette case that she was admiring from the beginning of the of the movie. While the house is burning, I think I think we skipped that part. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. She, well, she, she it, sets it's, the house it's on weird fire. because because she throws. I think it's when, when she's fighting Andy McDowell. She throws the lantern. Oh yeah, because I think she hits Andy McDowell she, she, with she the hit, lantern. She hit. Uh, she throws it tony in the face with the lantern a few times it, oh you're right it yeah. was tony yeah so she throws it and it starts a fire on like one of the drapes but then we kind of just we ignore the fire until when we see mr labelle because he disappears into the fire and then the fire spreads but like this is a good five minutes or so maybe even more than that when there might as well not be a fire in the house you know what i mean yeah and i and i kind of like that though too because it's like the house is so fucking big that you know like oh yeah i mean that's 10 rooms true. are ablaze and nobody notices or like they're so preoccupied with trying to kill grace and save their family that well yeah they only have a couple minutes so yeah so grace makes her way outside lights a smoke and as paramedics and firefighters and cops show up, and I think one of them comes up to her and says, Oh my God, are you okay? There's a girl over here. What happened to you? And she goes, In-laws. And then it ends. And that's uh, that's Ready or Not. With yeah. a bad cover of Love Me Tender playing. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With I'm, like sorry, a, I'm not a like fan a rock, of this cover. A rock whatever. cover. Yeah, so that's it. Ready or Not. How'd you like it, Patrick? I like it a lot. I think it's got a really great script. I think it is very funny in parts. It is incredibly tense in other scenes. And it, it, to work both of those kind of tones is, is impressive. And, and to do it as well as this one does is great. This movie reminds me of a couple of other movies I've seen. Definitely Your Next. Although it's different from Your Next because Your, Your Next is like a it's a home invasion movie with a kind of a twist on it where the person that is they're trying to kill in this house just happens to be like a master survivalist and they don't know that going in mm-hmm. and here i i mean i i like that i like your next a lot but like here i like samara weaving is just a pretty normal person she has to learn a what's going on but then also b how to defend herself in these scenarios and it's not like she's incredible at it she succeeds mostly because she's a really determined and because b 
the other people are incredibly inept, and, and I like that. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you on all your points. The script is definitely great. I mean, that might be one of the brightest spots of this movie. And other than, I guess, other than the script, I just mean, like, I don't really want to call it character development, which I guess is the script. I just like the way all the characters are brought to life by all these actors. And as far as I know, most of the actors are, I mean, mostly unknown. Like, I know that some of them are Canadian actors, and they're, like, in, well, like, a lot of Well, and then obviously Annie McDowell. We, we know Annie McDowell. She was a big deal back in the yeah. day. Uh, Notting Hill and, um, wait, no, not Notting Hill. Forwardings and Funeral, excuse me. The inferior Hugh Grant romantic comedy. Notting Hill is a freaking masterpiece. Don't <laughs> at me. But, yeah, and so obviously her. And then, yeah, the other actors, I mean, like I said, I I've like I sort of know who Adam Brody is. I don't really know how well-known or what he's known for. So Mara mm. Weaving is on her way to becoming a movie star, though. I think this yeah. was kind of the movie that brought her to a lot of people's attention. She had done some stuff before this. She's in The Babysitter, which she's really good in that. I don't like the movie that much. I Oh, my God, that movie... Is, is I that, felt is, like I was. Is that another horror movie? Yeah, it's like a okay, horror yeah. comedy. It's it's the horror comedy that I don't like. That's just like way <laughs> too goofy. And but it was like, I felt eighty years old watching that. Like if that is what like the kids are into nowadays, like that was just one of those movies <laughs> that is just like, oh my god. And then there was the Babysitter sequel where she has a small role in. And then what else did she do? She did something. Oh she, oh, she was in Mayhem, which is. She plays kind of a similar character in that. Mayhem's pretty good. She's she's great in that as well. And then since this, she's done... I haven't seen it, but I know she did Guns Akimbo, which I think is a Daniel Radcliffe movie, like an action, maybe action mm. comedy. I can't confirm. And then she was either Bill or Ted's daughter in the most recent Bill and Ted movie. Oh, that's right. Okay, which I yeah. haven't seen, but I know she's in that. So yeah, I, f- I feel like she's just starting to kind of get on people's radars who aren't necessarily big horror fans yeah I, th- I think she's a really talented actress and i think she's going to have continue to have a great career she's very pretty too which helps she looks a lot like margot robbie yeah yeah i uh i, I was actually she's margot uh... robbie with like a bigger nose and bigger eyes i think and they're both australian that coincidentally not all australians look alike i'm not saying that <laughs> Yeah, Hugh Jackman looks exactly like them, and same with Hugo Weaving. Uh, but Nicole Kidman same. doesn't because she was born in Hawaii, even though she's Australian, so she looks different. Was she really born in Hawaii? Actually, Nicole Kidman kind of <laughs> Nicole. Now that I think of it, Nicole Kidman kind of looks like them. is like an older version of Samara Weaving. <laughs> now that I really think of I it, know. as soon as you said that, there's I thought, something oh, about no. it. I'm not. I'm not sure if it's the eyes. It's some. There's something though. The it's the mouth. general facial structure. Maybe. It's like the mouth and nose, I think. Yeah, I, I was going to say chin and chin and mouth, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I watched this almost as many times as Killer Workout, because that is still number one for me. If I may talk about one problem I have with it. Oh yeah, I don't think it's a perfect movie. I want to bring up a famous YouTuber. I'm not going to tell him by name, but I'm going to bring him up. My small problem is the scene where Daniel realizes, oh shit, my family does deserve to die. We're all terrible people. Like, you, you see that, and you see that realization. He's like, oh my god, I do I do have to help this girl, you know, this poor girl. I don't give a shit about my family. As far as I'm aware, I don't get that same scene with Alex. I, I agree. Al- Alex, in general, Alex is the worst part of this movie. I think he's, to me, he's like the least compelling actor. He's just kind of bland. He's just kind of there. 
He's just kind of Yeah, but I agree. His switching back and forth, I think the movie's trying to get us us to see that, okay, now that he sees his wife has killed his mother, that's when he turns, but I don't really buy it. I'll tell you when I think he turned, because again... Or was he evil all along and helping her as like part of a game like i don't know it's just a little confusing i agree alex sucks we get several scenes throughout after he's been knocked out he's pretending to be knocked out still while helene and tony are talking about his legacy as in the legacy that alex should have or will be having you might get the sense that he's like oh maybe i'm really important to the survival of this family but then he still breaks free before he breaks free his mom comes in andy mcdowell and they have a bit of a chat and she says you know, if you really didn't believe in all this stuff, you wouldn't have brought Grace back to the house to marry her. And he says, well, I love her, and I, you know, we're going to run away together. I don't remember the exact lines, but then Andy McDowell says something like, oh, honey, do you really believe that a girl that you've known for a year and a half knows you better than I do? And Alex starts to cry. So you might think, well, maybe there he's realizing that he really does care about the family and, and, and the family's continuation. But then you're right. When he comes down the stairs, as you mentioned earlier, and he sees that Daniel's been shot in the neck, perhaps he's thinking, oh, Grace shot him. But then when he walks in on Grace beating his mother to death, you're like, oh, Grace is beating, is killing my mom. But I think the actual switch happens when he goes to approach Grace and she steps back. And he realizes that she will never love him, even if they both get out of this thing. I I mean, I guess I understand that makes sense. To me, that just makes Alex that much dumber. Mm -hmm. Because, again, like earlier when they had that argument in the um, cellar or wherever the hell, the hidden passageway, when he's he's like, oh, if I would have told you about this, you would have left. Like... Yeah, and, and of course, we both agreed with Samara Weaving there, but, like, in his mind, like, okay, movie character, oh, that's understandable logic. But, like, I, I don't understand why this is, like, a shocking revelation to him that she wouldn't want to be with him after. <laughs> like, at oh, this yeah, point, yeah. like, how can you how can you not yeah. <laughs> understand if you just, like, let her go? Like, okay, you've earned it, you know? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I, I'm just not the biggest Alex fan, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and for me, he's really my only major issue with the movie. Everything else, I think, is is okay. Now, but before you tell me, I mean, if, if you have anything you want to say that you did or didn't especially like about this, I was browsing around, and I came across a short review by a famous movie reviewer YouTuber, and he said some really interesting things about it, and I thought they were kind of nitpicky, but I also thought something that he said was... Oh, nitpicky? This couldn't be YMS, could it? <laughs> no, no, it isn't. But this guy made a comment about the theme of the movie that I thought was pretty interesting, in that I think it's wrong, but I want to know your opinion on it. And he also said something about the way the movie was filmed, and he said that he didn't like that a lot of the movie was shot with a handheld camera. With the running through the hallways, that stuff worked really well. I I don't think I was bothered by any of that at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't a Paul Greengrass movie or anything where it's like way <laughs> over the top. So yeah, I mean, I really had no issue with it. There was just one point that I the only time that I actually noticed it was again in the kitchen with the butler when Grace was still trying to escape the house. But I didn't have a problem with it. I thought that was kind of nitpicky. The other thing I wanted to know your opinion on was this YouTuber said that a main theme of the movie was that rich people are different. And I thought, that's not the main theme of the movie. I couldn't tell you what the main oh, theme no, of the movie uh, is. Oh, no, the main theme of the movie is that rich people are fucking psychos. That's the theme. <laughs> this, this is very clearly a social commentary, satire, whatever you want to call it. And I think it's incredibly, incredibly good at that. I think um, the whole, even the, the when none of them know what they're doing, like the Emily character, who's 
Emily and Fitch are the most over the top. Emily a little bit more so, I think. Fitch Fitch works for me comedically. He's great. But Emily, you know, freaking out, doing coke, like, uh, it's a bit much here and there. But the whole point with her is that she's never had to do anything for herself in her life. So the second (laughs) she has to fire a gun, she, like, almost shoots her dad. And (laughs) and she she shoots the wrong person here and there. And it's because she's never had to work a day in her life. I like that. Yeah, and there's also that line that I brought up near the beginning when Fitch says, you know, we couldn't get our regular charter out of De Gaulle. Yeah. You know, and I, I hate flying with everybody else. But also, too, there's a great line. Tony's talking about what will happen if they don't kill Grace by sunrise. And he said, do you remember the Van Horns? And uh, Fitch goes, oh, yeah. yeah, I thought they all died in a house fire. Right? He goes, no, no, that's what they said in the media. But, well, trust me, you don't want to know how they died. That one line implies that basically every old rich family has been aided supernaturally yeah, at one yeah, point or yeah. another, which I think is really interesting. And it's like, it's obviously satirical but it's like rich people are weird and rich people tied to traditions too and that's why i say like old money like that kind of thing is weird you know the old i think it's a skull and bones mm-hmm. club at like yale mm-hmm. you know okay they do some weird stuff i don't remember the name of it at oxford but the one that david cameron boris johnson and basically like every super rich uh, person was in you know the one where david cameron had to fuck a pig yeah that one. like pig. yeah, yeah. Rich, rich people <laughs> rich people's traditions are super weird and that's why like as ridiculous as this movie is it's you, you you understand it on that level on that kind of satirical level where it's like okay yeah. this isn't as much a stretch as like you initially think it is obviously it's a huge stretch it's the movie's not really meant to be taken seriously but it, i don't know i like that i also like that one of this film's producers and he appears in the movie briefly as mr labelle is a member of the vanderbilt family no really <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I mean, families like that that have been around for like hundreds of years and stuff like that money is spread so thin potentially throughout, you know, hundreds of cousins and stuff like that. So I don't know how like central he is the family, but but he is a Vanderbilt. That's that's great. So maybe 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 there's some uh, personal experience brought to this movie. Probably not because he's just a he's not a he doesn't have a writing credit or anything. Wouldn't that be great if that was like an old Vanderbilt tradition? Yeah. <laughs> After this movie comes out, there's just an FBI investigation on the Vanderbilt <laughs> on the Vanderbilt estate, and they find like dozens and dozens of skeletons. That'd be wonderful. And goats. <laughs> well, goat, goat skeletons, barn. sure. Yeah, yeah. I I like this movie. I like it. Again, I don't think it's really scary, but as a horror comedy, it is very tense and it's very funny and it's pretty effective. In, I think in its satire, it's pretty it's pretty good on that level. Yeah, Especially agree, with yeah. uh, the Fitch character, I think. Yeah. All right, so leaving that game of death and entering into a very different one, we have 1978's <laughs> Game of Death from Hong Kong from director Robert Klaus. But really, technically, there are three directors here. But Robert Klaus directed Enter the Dragon, which I haven't seen many Bruce Lee movies, but that's the best one I've seen. That's a really, really good movie. Jim Kelly, John Saxon. Jim Kelly, the one from Black Samurai, not the one from losing four Super Bowls in a row with the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> so, so you think, okay, Robert Klaus, he directed Enter the Dragon. We're in good hands here. He, he can direct a martial arts movie. Then you realize he also directed Jim Cotta. So it's like, okay, maybe oh, that's... Oh, no, he did, really? <laughs> yeah, he's the director. Oh. He's directed like five or six movies I've seen, but Jim Cotta oh, was, no. the, was the other one that stuck out to me. But uh, anyways, yeah, so this movie... So the story here is Bruce Lee 
died in 1973. Bruce <laughs> Lee considered... Why are you laughing at that? Bruce Lee I'm considered because of course, I thought you were going to tell the story of the movie. I'm telling. Like, this Bruce is Lee the story <laughs> of the movie. This <laughs> is like, this is. You cannot explain this movie without pointing out that Bruce Lee is clearly <laughs> dead when this movie was made. Uh, poor Bruce Lee. Yeah, no, but Bruce Lee. He he died a young man. He was um, famous Hong Kong martial arts actor. I believe he was born in San Francisco, actually. But most of his movies were made in Hong Kong. Achieved international stardom. Did not have a super long film career because he died young and he was the tupac of movie stars man they kept making movies with him after he was dead and part of it has to be just he must have shot just a lot of action scenes that maybe weren't connected to specific movies or something and then i mean that's clearly what's going on here Mm -hmm. but yeah so so he's he's dead and they i guess the the last movie he was working on game of death they released it as a short film at some point, like when he died or whatever, and it's about 40 minutes long. This is not that movie. It's got the same title, but this movie brought in director Robert Klaus to finish a movie based around the footage they had of Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. Therefore, basically what we have is some Bruce Lee action scenes and then a plot that does not have Bruce Lee in it, and you'll see some very clever ways they got around that. <laughs> and then and then also, you know, some action scenes in which it's not Bruce Lee, I guess, too. But this movie hits you hard in the opening because... It's, it's got a great opening. Well, the opening, like the... the uh, it's kind of a James Bondy opening. You've got the yeah. score by John Barry, first of all. You've got this, like, roulette table. It's a fun credit sequence. It's kind of a best-of Bruce Lee montage. You, they, a couple cut to a couple of his little fight scenes, including his famous one with Chuck Norris from... I can't remember. The, all the Bruce Lee movie titles sound the same. It's always something of something or something the something. So <laughs> no, Fist know, of Fury, maybe. Fist of the Dragon. I don't know. It's, it's something like that. It's not Enter the Dragon because that's the John Saxon one. Mm-hmm. But anyways, when that scene ends, or when the credit scene ends, it fades into the fight scene with Chuck Norris in the Coliseum, which is a great fight scene, famous fight scene, where he pulls off his chest hair. Great moment. And that ends... And then we're shooting around. Clearly, we don't have Chuck Norris here either because this scene was from a different movie. So you see the character of Billy Lowe, who I want to say is played by Bruce Lee, but who, in fact, isn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's on the film set, having just finished that scene, and a light almost falls on him. And so they cut to an extreme close-up of, like, a digitally zoomed-in close-up <laughs> of Bruce Lee looking up, and it's like, oh, no. Because... <laughs> This movie hits you hard in the opening because we have all of this plot stuff up front and Bruce Lee is not involved in the plot stuff. So it's like really annoying and it's really jarring. Just like you're convinced a couple minutes into this movie and it gets worse in just a minute or two. You're convinced a couple (laughs) minutes into this movie that there is going to be virtually no Bruce Lee. That by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, wow, that was actually a lot more Bruce Lee than I was expecting. Even though there's not that much. Billy Lowe. Is Billy Lowe is basically Bruce Lee. Like he's he's an internationally famous martial arts actor, and he walks over into his little green room, and there's a just a, a quick shot. It's just the worst thing you've ever seen in your <laughs> life. It's um this is basically this is basically Photoshop. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. Yeah. 
I mean, we Photoshop Photoshop wasn't invented yet, but we get a shot of the Bruce Lee stand-in, and he's got a towel wrapped yeah. around him. <laughs> so we get like a again like a close-up image of Bruce Lee that's literally cut out of whatever movie or still image it's from, and like pasted on to the stand-in. Yeah. And the camera isn't completely still, so the shot, so the shots, so so the Bruce Lee heads moving around a little bit when the body isn't or or whatever, and it's just like, oh my god, this is so bad and then and then they double down on it because when he's sitting in front of the mirror there's another one yeah it's that looks worse oh yeah that that's like the worst shot i've ever seen just about (laughs) but so so you're two minutes into this movie and you're thinking oh no (laughs) so we're not going to spend too much on the plot in this movie because you know bruce lee martial arts movie there's you know who cares about the plot but also because bruce lee doesn't spend any time on the plot yeah Bruce Lee's in a couple action scenes. He's not in any of this stuff. Well, you know, Bruce Lee's first real appearance in the movie is when he's in his coffin. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's technically true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's technically true. Other than the digitally zoomed in shots of him, where he's reacting to something that clearly didn't just happen. But oh, man. <laughs> Anyways, so Billy Lowe, I guess, has some kind of problem with some kind of gang in Hong Kong. And he's got this girlfriend with him, and they get attacked in kind of a fun little action scene. Because I guess they're they're like they there's a hit put out on Billy Lowe for some reason. He owes them money or something. And, and well, isn't it like? It, uh, uh, I mean, again, we're not getting too much. It doesn't player. matter. It, they, he okay, owes them yeah, money. Never mind yeah, okay. <laughs> he owes them money. He did something. Yeah, um, he owes them money for his Bruce Lee surgery. But <laughs> yeah, they're. Um, so there's a, f- a fun little fight scene when the uh, motorcyclists attack him and, and they threaten his girlfriend and everything. And, and Bruce Lee aficionados will know exactly what's coming when they see that dude in the yellow jumpsuit on the motorcycle. They're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I've seen Bruce Lee in that thing. So we're going <laughs> to. Um, so anyways, there's a little fight scene. It's a good fight scene. It's no like there's actually a brief moment where you can kind of see the Bruce Lee standard like kind of he almost looks like he's like getting tired in this in the fight scene, which. I, it's understandable. I can't do any of this shit, but I'm also thinking, like, <laughs> you know, that wouldn't have happened with Bruce Lee. Yeah, well, also, this stand-in, t- I mean, listen, okay. There's, okay, there's like, three or four stand-ins, first of yeah. all, and, and I don't know which one's which, so I'm not even going to bother saying the name. Sorry, Bruce Lee stand-in number two. <laughs> this specific stand-in, though, I don't want to sound racist, but I feel like he can't pronounce English words as well as some of the other Bruce Lee stand-ins. Oh, well, well, well no, then you're, then you're, t- you're not talking about the Bruce and stand-in, you're talking about the Bruce and, or the Bruce Lee dubber, which is a different Bruce Lee stand-in oh entirely. God, he doesn't yeah. appear on screen, he just dubs the voice. So that's that's a different thing entirely. <laughs> and this also, and again, I don't want to make fun of this Bruce Lee stand. Okay, so first one was about the dubber. This one's about the stand-in. Which, for all they're... I know, is a white guy trying to sound Asian. So maybe you aren't being racist. Maybe exactly, he's the yeah. one who's racist. But who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Andy Rooney, you know, <laughs> in the sound booth. <laughs> Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney. Damn it. <laughs> Mickey Rooney's the one. Andy Rooney's the guy that's with the Andy eyebrows. Rooney? <laughs> yeah. Idiot. Art Rooney. But yeah, this Bruce Lee stand-in, though, because they're filming him from the back, I mean, he, you know, it looks like Bruce Lee, sure. But then, like, you got, like, a couple close-ups of his face. He's got the giant these... sunglasses, too. Yeah, they're exactly. trying to hide it. Giant sunglasses. But, like, as soon as you see, like, if you know what real Bruce Lee looks like, you're like, oh, this guy has a much rounder face. Like, 
Yes. The sunglasses don't hide it, you know? (laughs) Yes, yeah. Also, there's there's a lot of uh, ways where they try to disguise it. There's one scene where it's like you see his face in the reflection while his girlfriend is recording some song. The camera keeps zooming in, and they're trying to distract you from his face with her cleavage. It's really great. Yeah. And it worked for me. (laughs) Anyways, so the hit's out on him, and Mel Novak disguised himself as a stuntman on Bruce Lee's newest film, Billy Lowe's, excuse me. (laughs) And the the scene that Billy Lowe is shooting, he, like, runs out of a house, and then he's supposed to do, like, a jump kick. And as he's running, Mel Novak situates himself and shoots him right in the face. And I actually think that might be... I think that's Bruce Lee running, isn't it? Uh, I think it is, yeah, because it's... I think it is, especially because it's so awkward how... uh, Especially, it's so it's so awkward how the actor falls. I feel like though those two things were not shot with the same person on the same day in the same year. No, you know those no. those two shots seem very disconnected. So that's why that's more than it looking like Bruce Lee. I'm like that's I think that's Bruce Lee running. But anyways, so Billy Lowe's been shot. They're going to fake his death, <laughs> and yeah it's they're they're gonna gonna fake his death death with real bruce lee (laughs) and (laughs) with real bruce lee and they're gonna give him some kind of like reconstructive surgery which apparently takes time because for a while he has a scar and then later on he's just bruce lee so that that is some (laughs) interesting surgery but also the guy who kind of helps him out here i want to point this out he's gig young are you familiar with gig young at all Mm -mm. this is he's this older guy okay couple things about gig young one he's a drunk probably well (laughs) This, yeah, okay, I don't know. Definitely, don't spoil definitely yet, in this one. Gig, Gig Young is an Academy Award winner for some movie I've never seen, some Jane Fonda movie. He won a supporting actor Oscar. He's also a star of possibly the finest half hour in television history, the Twilight Zone episode Walking Distance, where he, it's from season one, he's this businessman whose car breaks down and he realizes he's close to the home that he grew up in so he walks into town and finds that he's been transported back into the time of his childhood it's a fantastic half hour of television he's incredible in it the other interesting gig young fact is that he murdered his wife Oh. There's, there's just no way of getting around this. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a murderer. You're right, he, Patrick. That is interesting. <laughs> is it, it's a, it's a, I think it's just like a few years after this. Oh, it might be like a, a month after this movie or something. But he, oh, uh, no. it was a murder-suicide, unfortunately. And, oh, uh, no. Yeah. And then the funnier thing is the how I learned about that, because I, I didn't know that. And I, I was like reviewing this movie on Letterboxd, and I saw that a Letterboxd connection that I have reviewed this movie. <laughs> and he, his name is Feck. And uh, and he said, I'm, I'm crediting here because this is like the best re- letterbox review I've ever seen. And he said, Gig Young really killed it in this movie and his wife. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic stuff. And it's like, and I'm like, what? And I looked it up and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. No, Gig Young. Oh, Gig Young. Uh, uh, but I do want to say when we first see him, I think the first time we see him in this movie is like at the, at the restaurant that fake Bruce Lee and Anne. All right, mm-hmm. fake Bruce Lee's girlfriend, and he seems so fucking drunk in real life. He's like he's slurring all of his dialogue 
don't yeah. know if you noticed that. I mean, I yeah, did, yeah, but... I did. I I just get the impression. I I don't know what it is about, but like actors from that time period, it seemed like when they got a little bit older, they were all fucking drunks. Like Ernest Borgnine, <laughs> like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like all those guys, yeah. just, Richard Burton. My God, he was. Yeah, poor Richard, Richard Burton might have been the worst, but like, is there like an older actor from like from that generation that like wasn't a huge drunk when he when he got older? You know? No. <laughs> Richard Burton, Ernest Borgnine. Um, there's like another Peter one. Peter O'Toole. Um, Peter O'Toole's not a young man at that point, but I still feel like he's not quite the Ernest Borgnine generation. <laughs> um, oh, what about what, what no. about uh, the, the guy who played? Uh, oh shit, what's his name? Uh, uh, the guy who played the first Dumbledore. Uh, oh no, the the best example. And it, to be fair, this guy was a drunk in his prime. But Oliver Reed. Oh yeah, <laughs> Oliver Reed. How can you talk about drunks in, in movies <laughs> without talking about Oliver Reed? So, anyways, where were we? Gig Young murdered his wife, and then Bruce Lee. And um, also another thing, Gig Young gives me Gig Young gives me major Robert Wagner vibes, and possibly more for their off-screen. <laughs> crimes than anything else but yeah I, there's I, I, there's a resemblance between those two i think both have great hair and yeah and probably murdered their wives so anyways continuing on with bruce lee not being in this movie so we're doing this surgery and billy Lowe is out to get his revenge he's not going to contact his girlfriend at least for a while we got to point out how they use bruce lee's actual funeral footage in the movie and uh, apparently that was a pretty uncool thing to do. Uh, they have actual shots of like Bruce Lee in like actual Bruce Lee dead in his <laughs> coffin with like glass over the top of it, and like yeah, which w- w- like is that was how Bruce? Lee, why did they give him a communist uh, burial? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like that's that's how you like. Well, I can't tell you how pissed off I I was when I heard that Castro wasn't getting the glass coffin. I'm like, no, that's that's a tradition. That's, I know. Like that's what I you know. people do. Bruce Lee. I guess you know Chinese descent technically, you know, so communist. I guess he's yeah, but he, like but the he's Lenin Hong Kong. They're not uh, Hong Kong oh, yeah, was, right. was a yeah. British territory. You're right. At this you're time, right. Reminder until about ninety four, ninety nine, maybe that late. Okay, I don't know. It was, well, when I did Rush Hour 90s. come out? Because <laughs> 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 Rush Hour was about the transfer of that. Well, Rush Hour I think was two thousand, but I want to say the transfer was actually like ninety eight or something. But yeah, anyways. Uh, I learned my Asian history through Rush Hour and Rush. <laughs> Actually, I think was was it Rush Hour Two that focused on that? Uh, I think Rush Hour Two came out in ninety eight. Rush Hour Two came out in two thousand one. Here's how I know that: my brother and a, a group of friends, like our neighbors, we were going to go out and see a movie. It was a toss up between Rush Hour Two and the first Fast and the Furious movie. All right, that's how long okay. ago that series <laughs> has been going. And we decided on Rush Hour Two. I had never seen the first one, so we go out and see it. The next day, nine, it was nine eleven. <laughs> so this oh, is like September tenth, two thousand one, or something. That's oh, how, that's when Rush Hour two came out. Wow. That's how I remember. And and the crazy thing was, is I was a kid. I was in third grade. I had never heard the word terrorist or terrorism. Not until 9-11 i had never heard it until the day before when i was watching rush hour 2 and that's the topic of conversation oh my god (laughs) it's just a weird coincidence (laughs) so yeah okay so bruce lee's funeral footage yeah yeah this is this is a little messed up i mean i i don't did they get family approval i I don't think so i mean 
it's Hong Kong in 78. They probably didn't try. <laughs> they probably didn't try to get it. Maybe they did. I don't know. I agree. It, it, it makes you feel uncomfortable. But anyways. So then Billy Lowe busts into... Bruce Lowe. Uh, yeah. Well, oh God. Are you familiar <laughs> with Bruce Bruceploitation, by the way? No. Okay. <laughs> is that what this is, sort of? <laughs> sort of. Well, I mean, sort of, but also not, because the big thing about Bruce Bruceploitation was they would always get a guy, and they, they would just get actors with just, like, normal names, but they would give them Bruce Lee-type names, and it would be, like, <laughs> Bruce Lee, like Bruce L-I, or Bruce, oh Bruce Lai, like L-A-I. There would always be names like Bruce Lee, and their real names were like, I don't know, they weren't Bruce. <laughs> and, Marcus. <laughs> and um, it was basically, I don't know if it, it might have been while Bruce Lee was alive. It definitely kept going after he died, though. And Bruce exploitation movies were basically about, can we slap together a martial arts movie and convince you Bruce Lee is in it? <laughs> and that is that's largely what's going on here but there's a little bit more integrity because Bruce Lee is technically in this and also because they they didn't slip you that fake Bruce Lee name stuff there's no Bruce Lee Bruce Lai or yeah, Bruce yeah. Lee LI so a little bit more integrity going on here. Perhaps the most famous Bruce exploitation flick being The Clones of Bruce Lee which I believe starred like six or seven different Bruce exploitation <laughs> actors. <laughs> I've never seen it. I really want to. <laughs> but yeah, Bruce exploitation was a fascinating period in, I wanted to say Hollywood, but I guess in Hong Kong cinema, where it was, you know, those um, Hong Kong filmmakers, there, there was a little Italian in them, I guess you could say, <laughs> where they just saw uh, something they could exploit and rip off, and they went for it. <laughs> There's a little Italian in them. <laughs> There's a little Italian in everybody. <laughs> anyways so there's a, there's a fun fight scene like in this garden area of the syndicates and it actually because they show like this big pond and you, immediately when you see that okay someone's getting thrown in there and it takes a long time for it to happen but eventually everyone is thrown in there like one by yeah. one it's kind of a weird a weirdly structured scene you know billy Lowe is kicking the shit out of these people but the only thing that drives him away is that one guy with a gun i assume it's mel novak again it might be the second in command who's not mel novak white guys i get the white guys mixed up in this movie okay (laughs) i do i know dean jagger because he looks like uncomfortably old like he looks like retirement home age like (laughs) i feel kind of uncomfortable watching him Mm -hmm. although it's pretty funny when you see his him slit his wrists later but we'll get oh, into great. that <laughs> <laughs> anyways you know there's an action scene here or there but eventually the syndicate figures out okay we can get him to come out of hiding if we take his girlfriend and we capture her so they do and she's being held in a warehouse for some reason or at least i guess i mean you, you never actually see shots with her connected with like the rest of the set because i'm sure they just shot at someplace else but it's like yeah but the next action scene we see here is the warehouse action scene and this scene's a lot of fun this is our best non-bruce lee action well actually the the fight in the locker room is pretty fun too yeah I, I like that one that one's good and i don't know if they shot it in a way or if that guy if if the stand-in they had there looked more like bruce lee than the others but something about that scene seemed more authentic than a lot of the other ones but anyways on to the motorcycle scene so I mentioned earlier the yellow suit motorcycle guy. There's like four or five guys driving around in the motorcycle, and I guess they're supposed to be guarding the girlfriend, except they do a bad job of it because they break into the warehouse themselves. 
right? The, the warehouse yeah. is secure, and they just crash through yeah. the glass. And it's like, yeah, okay, they drive well, what are they doing? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, really, you just wanted to have a scene where someone drove through glass. Uh, <laughs> anyways, anyways, uh, Billy Lowe shows up, and he takes out the guy in the yellow jumpsuit first, because, of course, he wears that costume later. And then he takes him out one by one. And there's some really interesting or neat individual stunts here. Every time we have, like, a cool action thing, it's in slow-mo here. Some of it looks better than the others. Like, when he takes out the guy in the yellow suit, it's awesome. It's this yeah. jump kick from, like, the top shelf of, like, you know, that looks really cool. Some of the other ones, not so much. There's one where they had to shoot, shoot it in slow motion, because if they would have shown it in normal motion, you would see how his motorcycle doesn't actually do anything when he goes to hit the guy, <laughs> because he hits <laughs> him at, like, one mile an hour, and it's supposed to, like, send yeah. him flying. But anyways, yeah, so he takes him out all one by one. He gets the jumpsuit on, and there's not a single shot connecting him with the girlfriend. The girlfriend just runs away. Oh, you're right. I didn't even realize. And here's the thing. I'm partially glad they didn't really show a lot of resolution with the girlfriend character because she was never in a single scene with Bruce Lee. So we would have gotten some guy and they would have tried to Photoshop Bruce Lee's face on him again for a kiss scene. It would have looked awful. (laughs) <laughs> or we would have gotten the big Elton John sunglasses or something. It would have looked bad. I'm, gl- I'm glad she kind of just disappears from the movie. And I'm okay with that. So then he's outside. He takes out the final motorcycle guy. And this is in the rain now. And then Mel Novak's sitting there with the gun. And he misses. And so uh, Billy Lowe takes him out. And this is a fun little scene. I mean, I assume Mel Novak doesn't know a lot of martial arts. But he's doing an okay job. He's kind of fighting more like a boxer. But that's fine. He gets taken out, of course. And then, this is what you're here for, folks. The Bruce Lee section of the film, finally, with like 20 (laughs) minutes left. We get a solid three great fight scenes with Bruce Lee, all uninterrupted. So the first one, so Bruce Lee shows up, and and this is where Billy Lowe has had a scar on his face the last hour, but not anymore. He's just, no, it's just Bruce Lee. He goes into it. This is supposed to be the Chinese restaurant where the gang hangs out. It's very clearly not. I mean, it's just, you know, well, he got, I mean, he got, walks through a restaurant, then he goes upstairs, and we're clearly nowhere in the same <laughs> building, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> We've got this fight scene with nunchucks, and this is awesome. This is, there's a lot of famous little Bruce Lee moments here. There's, this scene is so much fun. And this one, I mean, Bruce Lee really looks like he was having a lot of fun with this. Like, he, oh, for he, sure, he, yeah. you see a lot of his personality in this fight scene, more so than certainly any of the stand ins, you know? Well, exactly. And that's what I was going to say. This is when you see, you're like, oh, yeah. This is how Bruce Lee does it. Everybody else was just like, fight, fight, fight. I mean, everyone else is fine, but he is so much better. If you think about it, like, you're replacing Bruce Lee, considered, if not the greatest martial artist ever, at least the greatest film martial artist ever. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there's competitive martial arts, and yeah, I don't know what Bruce Lee did in that. Maybe he was incredible at that. I don't know. But it's like, to make an analogy, think of you're shooting the movie Space Jam, and Michael Jordan <laughs> dies, so you so you replace him with Reggie Miller or Gary Payton, like some other black, Clyde Drexler, some other black shooting guard, and you're hoping no one notices when instead of dunking from the free throw line, Michael Jordan, aka Reggie Miller, instead pulls up from beyond the arc and shoots a three. Like, you're going to notice. like, And it's just like, it's not the same thing i mean i mean it's not just that like we're replacing an actor we are replacing the best person at doing this kind of thing it's just unfortunate yeah but i like that we still get three pretty great bruce lee fight scenes so he's got the nunchuck guy who he disposes of i like this fight scene a lot 
Yeah, it's kind of like nunchuck porn. They just oh yeah, because they're because because like, there's like a solid two minutes where they're just <laughs> where they're, they're just not actually fighting. They're just yeah. Who can nunchuck faster or whatever? I, I'll show you what I got if you show me yours. <laughs> Which again, that's the the Bruce Lee personality coming through there. Uh, it's mm-hmm. great. And then the second one, the level up from there, he fights. I, I assume this guy's supposed to be Japanese. I mean, I I don't know anything about martial arts, so you could tell me that this guy is doing karate, and the other people we've been seeing have been doing wushu the entire time. I don't know. Maybe that's true. But I, the reason I say that this guy's wearing like a Japanese kind of outfit, so I'm kind of assuming he's doing karate. But in and I mean. Bruce Lee was well-versed in more than one martial art, so, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. But anyways, he, t- he takes care of this guy. He breaks the dude's back. Like, yeah, he just slams it like it's scene. like a WWE move. He just, bam, <laughs> oh, yeah. breaks his back over his knee. <laughs> and then he goes upstairs to fight Hakeem, played by NBA <laughs> legend, not Michael Jordan, Reggie Miller, Gary Payton, or Clyde Drexler, NBA yeah. legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> this it's scene great. is is incredible okay so kareem was was teased earlier in the movie and i'll call him kareem it's possible he was actually known as luel cinder when his scenes were shot i don't think so i think he changed his name around 1970 or so and he probably shot these scenes in like 72 when he was a member of the milwaukee bucks eventually obviously long and fruitful career with the los angeles lakers we all know he was better in milwaukee though but it doesn't matter <laughs> anyways so for those of you that don't know, for those of you that aren't basketball fans and were confused by my last Michael Jordan analogy, Kareem <laughs> Abdul-Jabbar is seven foot two, and in his prime was probably about two hundred pounds. He is the lankiest, weirdest looking person. I mean, he's seven foot two, <laughs> and there's not an ounce of fat on him. No. And here's the thing. I mean, he was, he actually trained in martial arts under Bruce Lee. I have no idea if he was any good. He's good enough to make it into a Bruce Lee movie, so I'd imagine he's at least respectable. But, I mean, he's also in there because it's a spectacle to see Bruce Lee fight someone who's twice his size. I mean, that's yeah, just awesome. Yeah, literally twice his size. <laughs> he's so big. He's so tall. It's incredible. But, yeah, I mean, because I guess in addition to movie making, and Bruce Lee also had a role on the television series The Green Hornet, Green Lantern, whichever one has Green an Hornet. Asian sidekick. I don't know superheroes. Green Hornet, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> he, he was on that show and then he also like i guess i don't know if this is like his you know his night job or something but like he trained like celebrities and like self-defense and martial arts like he famously trained sharon tate and don't say yeah. not well because sharon tate was like eight and a half months pregnant okay i don't think any <laughs> bruce lee martial arts could have helped her but yeah he he um had apparently spent so much time training her that roman polanski you know what a wonderful man that he is when he found out his wife was killed he was like ah it's that guy it's that asian dude it's bruce lee that did it (laughs) did you know that bruce lee was was accused of murder by roman polanski oh my god that's great (laughs) yeah yeah they didn't cover i thought they were gonna because i I saw in the trailer that like bruce lee was in once upon a time in hollywood i'm like oh are they gonna touch upon that no they don't even hint at a bruce lee sharon tate any kind of relationship there but no he was well yeah there's no relationship but they do show uh, yeah relationship as in the two knowing each other i don't mean oh yeah yeah they they show a shot of bruce lee and sharon tate practicing martial arts together oh i guess i don't remember that i don't know Anyways, uh, so Bruce Lee is fighting Kareem, and um, the, we did we did show a little scene earlier of, of Hakeem, the character. I'm going to call him Kareem, though. Uh, it, we saw a little scene earlier just kind of showing us that he's like the big, 
big bad guy that we should be afraid of. And this scene is a lot of fun. It might not be technically as good as the other two fight scenes, but it's more interesting because, and and it's funny too, but Kareem literally, he sits down in his little chair and Bruce Lee comes at him and he just sticks his foot out and kicks him in the chest. And like Bruce Lee cannot get at this guy. And I love that you have that giant footprint that takes up half of Bruce Lee's torso on yeah. his jumpsuit for the rest of the scene. Yeah, I love it. But but I like this scene because Bruce Lee figures out he can't win this fight by fighting aggressively because he literally cannot get to Kareem. He is too friggin' long. So as the scene goes on, he kind of, he starts doing a lot more countering and he, and he attacks more defensively. And so there's actually like some, it's, it's an interesting fight in that sense. Again, I don't know shit about martial arts i'm sorry i'm just talking about like watching this as a movie fight scene there's like some he learns early on and he figures things out and there's a little bit of like cleverness there and i'm also not going to deny that it's fun as hell to see a tiny ass bruce lee trying to choke kareem (laughs) when he's on the ground and he's just like moving like there's there's some like it's 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 just such an absurd size difference that mm-hmm. like you, your brain doesn't know how to process it. Oh no, it's, yeah, it's great. It's great. But yeah, I love this scene. Obviously, eventually, you know, eventually Bruce Lee wins. And now, uh, now I, I got a question about how he wins. Does he win because he like blinds Kareem with the light, like the light coming through the window that he knocked out? Yeah, I, there was because he like knocks his glasses out, and there there was like a. I understand what you mean. It almost like looked like it was trying to like but it, except he was wearing sunglasses he wasn't wearing like, yeah exactly glasses like, to help him see so i don't know what that was about i don't know <laughs> i'm just wondering what movie these scenes were shot for because yeah. I, I genuinely don't know I, i'm sure someone knows this this has been written about in bruce lee biographies all that stuff i'm sure were these scenes originally supposed to be like climactic scenes or were they even supposed to be part of a narrative were, were these just scenes that like bruce lee because they all almost look like they're in this they're probably on the same set and and it's like did he just shoot them all you know over a couple of weekends and it's just like here i'm just kind of testing out this fighting technique i want to see how this looks on film i have a feeling it was more than that because he does end up killing (laughs) all three of the guys so i feel like these were supposed to be in a movie yeah, and it, it's it, possible they are in other movies that I just haven't seen. I don't know. I've only seen them in this movie. Well, I think I was reading about it, and I think that this footage is the only 40 minutes or like... I, I think. Yeah, a, is this in the 72 Game of Death? Yeah, I have no clue. But going back to what you said about if this feels climactic or not, like it, it does, but it's weird in the sense that it seems like if it was going to be put in a movie... Uh, it, apparently they are in the 72 Game of Death because I'm looking up the oh. cast for that and it lists Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the fifth floor guardian. Oh, So see, he goes up and up and up up these that's floors. That's exactly what I was going to say. It okay. seems like th- that those scenes, you know, like he would have entered like a pagoda or something on the ground floor and would have been working his way up the whole movie to get to some kind of boss, but it would have been getting harder and harder, you know, the higher he went. And I wonder how many floors there would have been. I wonder, with, with that title name, Game of Death, seems more appropriate than whatever the hell we got you know i'm seeing i'm seeing five floors and i'm seeing some of the floor guardians never had their scenes shot but they were cast for the movie so the the guys that we saw i assume were you know kareem abdul jabbar is the fifth floor who he's credited as mantis in this in this movie not hakeem yeah it's i mean he looks he's got those giant legs and the long ass legs he is kind of praying mantis like they have a third floor guardian 
And they have a second floor guardian. So I guess first and fourth they didn't shoot. Well, and like when, when you look back at that scene at the beginning. Oh, when, no, uh, sorry. The third, fourth, and fifth floor guardians they have. And they also have other people listed as like second fighter, third fighter. But they weren't the floor. I, I assume we are seeing the third, fourth, and fifth floors of this other movie, you know. And they never shot the other two. But anyway, yeah, which it, It's really interesting that you bring that up because when Bruce Lee, like when it cuts to the actual Bruce Lee coming into that first room that we see above this restaurant and you see the guy sitting there on his chair and he's like surprised to see that bruce lee showed up so like you know in the script or in the original idea for the movie this guy's surprised that bruce lee made it past the first two floor guardians yeah yeah you know it's neat that's really mm-hmm. neat yeah anyways and then after this incredible fight we get some <laughs> lame ass like lieutenant dude who clearly doesn't know martial arts who's gonna fight bruce lee the fisticuffs this yeah this scene kind of sucks although he dies in a pretty cool way but yeah, this this is, I mean, the Kareem fight is so great, and it's so different. I mean, it's so different from other Bruce Lee fights, even, just because of how, you know, the freaking monster that Kareem is. Like, you <laughs> yeah. don't want to see just, like, a pretty normal fight after that, you know? But that's what we get. And then, <laughs> and then he kills the dude, and then Bruce Lee goes upstairs to find Dean Jagger, and you really want to see him, you know, punch out this 90-year-old man. But he sees that Dean Jagger has slit his wrists, and he goes up closer, and he, and he does, he like punches or karate chops Dean Jagger's head, and the head comes off. It's it's just a super realistic looking dummy. <laughs> it's like out of nowhere. It's like what? What the hell is this? Uh, oh, and I, sh- I should I should point this out. I I'm sorry, but once Kareem is killed, that's it for Bruce Lee. The last fight scene. One of the reasons it's lame. It's not Bruce Lee. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> the movie really goes down a lot after that. But when he chases Dean Jagger on the roof, there's some fun stuff here, though. Because, again, incredibly anticlimactic, because he eventually just, like, finds Dean Jagger, like, climbing down the little ladder, and then he doesn't even do anything. Dean Jagger just loses his footing, and he just slides down. He doesn't, like, throw him or anything. He just slides <laughs> he slides down and then falls off the roof to his death. In a really fun dummy shot, it's it's actually not a bad dummy. It just it, there's something inherently funny about a dummy for a 90 year old <laughs> man falling yeah, down, falling through like neon signs and stuff. Yeah, during these lights. And also, they gave they gave the dummy like Bruce Lee dubbing, yelling. Like yeah. why? Like, because know. we haven't we haven't mentioned this, but and I don't know why this is, but the dubbing for Bruce Lee action scenes is always like super high pitched. I don't know, it's again, all the sound in these movies, it's all added later. This is like a thing in, in Hong Kong movies, this is a thing in Italian movies at the time. You don't use audio from the set. You would just have everything in later. That's why Italian movies, everyone spoke their own language and they'll just dub it all with American and English actors and then Italian actors. And it's like, so here, so I don't know if Bruce Lee actually sounded like that. Yeah, it was like super loud. Where I had to turn the volume on my TV down. But yeah, like, someone oh in God. someone in Hong Kong wanted him to sound that way at the very least, and and it, <laughs> it takes some getting used to because it's kind of funny at first. Oh yeah, definitely. But after you know, it's, I've seen a few Bruce Lee movies. It's like okay, I'm kind of used to it, but I'm not used to <laughs> a Dean Jagger dummy sounding like it. <laughs> I'm not used to that, and I don't think I ever will be. But anyways, that's uh, well, I, I shouldn't say that's quite the end because we do get a emotional tribute. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, with uh, another kind of clip show going with with an you know, emotional song, kind of like the t- title sequence 
but with various clips from other Bruce Lee movies, some of which look freaking incredible. Like, oh, yeah. I, I I don't know what most of those movies are, but I, like, want to see... There's one where he's fighting, like, 14 guys at once. Like, I want to see that movie. Hey, yeah, so we got Game of Death. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, and so that's how Game of Death ends. Uh, Jim, well, I, first I want to say that this is... Um, so this, uh, the, as far as emotional, like, series-ending little clip show, end-of-movie tribute things go, and this obviously isn't a series of movies, it's just Bruce Lee is dead, and, he, and in this case, he has been for five years, actually, when this movie comes out, but yeah. I think this is somewhere between the one at the end of Rocky Five and the one at the end of Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, you know? <laughs> I'll leave it up to you to decide which of those two is the, is the more emotionally moving, but this is somewhere in there for me. This is I like I enjoyed this, and I, like I said, I want to see these other movies. So, Jim, what did you think of Game of Death? Um, I loved it. I honestly did. I loved it. Uh, just because it's so fucking terrible. Uh, I mean, and actually, it's not that bad. It's just that, like, a lot of the trying to hide the fake Bruce Lee's fakeness is terrible. And uh, It really is. The, those first five minutes are, like, oh, horrifically yeah. bad. Oh. Like, it's Ed Wood levels I mentioned earlier. It really yeah, is. Yeah, well, and then, and then, like, you realize that there's, like, so much stuff involving other characters, like the syndicate. That, and you're like, they had to add this because they have no Bruce Lee. But, like, I'm going along with it. You know, I, I think it's great. Like that whole uh, um, martial arts match between that unfit white guy and that also unfit Chinese guy. You know who? Like you know what I'm talking about? Oh, in, in the ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, there's just two unfit guys going at it. Was, I think that's kick. I think that would be considered kickboxing. Oh, was it kickboxing? Okay. I think so because it, because they treat it like a boxing match, but there's just kicking. Oh, okay, also. yeah. See, I didn't even know. So, and uh, MMA isn't a thing yet, so I assume that's no. what that is. But yeah, I mean, like, like that scene goes on for like five minutes, maybe. Then there's like a five minute lead up to that without fake Bruce Lee, and then fake Bruce Lee shows up in old age makeup and like a wig and beats the crap yep. out of this out of Carl. But you know, like, I I really enjoyed watching it. I thought it was hilarious, and then the actual Bruce Lee stuff was great. It was awesome. Also, one thing we didn't point out, I mentioned probably the best non-Bruce Lee fight scene is the one in the locker room with Carl. Yeah. There is an awesome shot where he's being held, and I, I almost forget, like, I, I'm trying to remember the anatomy of it because this was an insane stunt. Yeah. But, like, he swings all the way up and, like, kicks him in the chin. Like, it's just like he's holding him with his arms behind his back. And so he, he he swings up and under. Like, that is such a cool thing. That is the coolest non-Bruce Lee thing in this movie. It's arguably the coolest thing in this movie. It's that awesome. Yeah, and, like, th- there's definitely a difference between... Because, again, I don't know how many fake Bruce Lees they had, but there's... The guy who did the locker room fight is was definitely the best fake Bruce Lee. I want to say visually even he was the most convincing. I, I was the least taken out of that fight scene. I mean, I was taken out because we had a couple digitally zoomed in yeah. close-ups of Bruce Lee <laughs> uh, yeah. in, in it a few times. But yeah. other well, than that, also, yeah, I thought that guy was good. Also, apparently, I looked this up. I, I don't know if it's true. I just saw it on Wikipedia and IMDb. But again, I have no idea if it's true. Jackie Chan was like 17 years old and working as like a stunt guy on this. Okay. I mean, but, yeah. Uh, again, Jackie Chan... A d- drunken master i think also comes out in 78 i think that's kind of like jackie chan's first big starring mm-hmm. role i want to say yeah i don't know i mean it could be well i did not love this movie but i did enjoy it and this i had seen this movie before and for the life of me i must not have been paying attention because i don't remember how blatant it was that they didn't have 
Bruce Lee early on. I don't remember the Photoshop, and that's what I'm just going to call it because I don't know what else to call it. They, they like <laughs> cut out like a picture of Bruce Lee and pasted it on the image. I don't know what else to call it uh, because that stuff is hilarious. But I mean, when I talk about enjoying this movie, I'm not really talking about that because who on earth has ever watched a Bruce Lee movie for the plot? Yeah, you know exactly. And I mean, yeah, you watch a Bruce Lee movie for Bruce Lee and you get 15, 20 minutes of Bruce Lee here. But those 15, 20 minutes, those three fight scenes are so friggin' great. And it's kind of unfortunate that what follows those is kind of weak, again, with the exception of the dummy, which is great. <laughs> a little bit like, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm really like glued to the screen for those scenes. And uh, the, uh, the action not involving Bruce Lee... It's not as good, but it is still pretty good. I think the first fight scene with the motorcycle guy is not that great, and the scene with the with the pond isn't that great, but the warehouse scene with, with all the bikers, like, that stuff's awesome. Mm-hmm. And the locker room fight scene is pretty great. Like, they're not as good as the Bruce Lee fight scenes, but they're pretty friggin' good, too. Yeah, out of, and like, so, five yeah. fight scenes, you get three pretty cool fight scenes, and one of them is involving actual, actual Bruce Lee, and it's awesome. Yeah, well, it's the three consecutive fight scenes, though. All yes, Lee, yes. Which, I mean, obviously, those are the highlights of the movie. I mean, it, and it's it's coming down even to, I'm, I'm not about to say Bruce Lee's a great actor, and I don't know how much of this is we don't get shots of the fake Bruce Lee's faces because we don't want, but like I mentioned with the nunchuck scene, you see Bruce Lee's personality comes through in that scene it's not just a fight scene there's more to it he's playing around with the nunchucks he's showing off he's having a good time he's he's intimidating the other guy you don't get any of that in the other scenes because we're not trying to have close-ups of their face if we can avoid it which obviously that's a smart move so they're not just better fight scenes because the action is better and because it is but like there's <laughs> there's a little something to extra to those scenes too yeah maybe bruce lee's a great actor i don't know i i feel like you know he really all he does is kick people like i mean he does nobody does it better (laughs) nobody does it nobody does that better than anyone but better better than him but like i i don't know i've I've never seen a role that's like given him a lot to do dramatically you know maybe he was good i don't know going back to something you said when you talked about bruce lee's uh, actual introduction for me watching it it was pretty jarring it took me a second to kind of readjust because not only was that like the dubbing of, of Bruce Lee's multiple war cries kind of crazy and super high pitched and loud and a little obnoxious. Just everything was so different. Maybe the filming felt different, like the, the environment was different, like like the set was so different, but also just the fighting was so different from anything else except for maybe that locker room scene, which was great. Not only did it make me realize, oh yeah, this is definitely Bruce Lee, like this is awesome, but I was also like, Oh, Bruce Lee's also a little much for me in this scene right now. I kind of want to go back to that locker room where fake Bruce Lee's kicking the crap out of Carl. I don't know. For me, it was kind of it was kind of strange. I eventually got used to it, but yeah. I gotta be honest. I have I guess... no idea what you're talking about there. <laughs> okay, yeah, no real. I, it was no real point. It was just it was just like a jarring scene for me to get to get like this 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 crazy martial artist who's whooping and hollering in there. Well, you're getting the whooping and hollering these... in other scenes. It's the same guy dubbing the Bruce Lee screams when it's whether it's Bruce Lee or not in this in this movie. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it might have just felt so different because the personality was there, whereas it was essentially somebody yeah, wearing the, a mask especially the because time. the because the the nunchucks too. It's it's the noises with the, he does with the nunchucks are different there. Well, no, not just not the noises of the nunchucks themselves. The noises he's doing while he's mm. he's doing that. Mm. Whoa, 
kind of thing. Yeah, it was yeah. like, it is a different kind of sound than we've heard. Yeah, I suppose. I, yeah, I know what you mean. I sort of. Not, well, I mean, I got used much, to it and I enjoyed it. I just, it was just it was just a crazy, crazy change of pace. I felt, I don't know. That, I had no problem anyways. with it. Okay, so Jim, which of these two movies did you prefer? You know, actually, that one's a tough one because I, I really enjoyed both. But I think I'm going to go with Ready or Not. Yeah, I, I, I don't really have a specific reason other than I just really, 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 really thoroughly enjoyed it. And all the acting and the story and that satanic element and that rich people are crazy sort of theme. Um, There's yeah. people are evil and crazy. Yeah, evil. Yeah. And stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm going to I'm going to agree with you. I also enjoyed Ready or Not a little bit. Well, I don't even want to say a little bit more. I enjoy it more. And I think because really I enjoy Game of Death, but I enjoy it basically for one thing, and that's the action. And the action's really good. But Ready or Not, I enjoy for a number of different reasons. The script is great. The acting is solid. Especially, I mean, Samara Weaving's incredible in it. Mm-hmm. The humor is pretty good. There's it's a great, few yeah. moments maybe where it goes a little over the top, but for the most part, I find it pretty funny. And it. I appreciate that it gets as gory as it gets when you don't necessarily expect it to. Yeah. You don't really see that ending coming necessarily. I mean, I, I had seen the film <laughs> a couple of times before, but when I first saw it, I'm like, oh, I did not expect that. <laughs> so how do you think this works as a double feature? Don't tell me you don't think it does. No, I think it does. I think it's great. Oh, my God. I, we agree. Oh, wonderful. Explain anyways. <laughs> this is a rare occurrence, folks. If this is your first episode listening, this might be the first time Jim has ever <laughs> thought these two movies work well together. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I think it's great because you have two games of death, you know? it's <laughs> yep, Yeah, it's coincidental, folks. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. It's, it's just great. I, I think they work together really well. And one, I was thinking about this earlier, one is based kind of around the ineptitude of a family trying to kill somebody, and the other one is just <laughs> the ineptitude the of The ineptitude of a syndicate trying to kill <laughs> yeah. somebody. <laughs> and yeah, the that, that ineptitude of filmmakers <laughs> trying to bring someone back from the dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. But no, I love it. I think it works. I think it works together super great. I don't know. I, something something struck a chord with me. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with with that. I think you know, you get your laughs and you get your horror element. You get your tension in Ready or Not. You get your satire. And in Game of Death, you start with a lot of laughs, unintentional, <laughs> granted. But then you film it. I can't really say this is tense, but just how exciting that action is when you get into those those three floors and that kareem scene especially like that stuff's great like yeah i I could almost like you know the original short film 39 40 minutes whatever i would have seen just those three scenes as a short film together i don't need Mm -hmm. a plot we get a plot and it sucks it doesn't matter we're not here for the plot we're here for bruce lee by the end of uh i almost called it game of death by the end of ready or not you're just like you're just on this wild crazy ride of following this poor woman trying to survive a night in this crazy mansion and she's getting cut up and bruised and beaten up and everything with game of death it's all leading to that bruce lee stuff yeah, and it's just so awesome to watch. And you really yeah. end with, like, both movies really end on a high note. Uh, well, sort of. Game of <laughs> with the dummy falling down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the high yeah, note. Yeah, I'll agree on that's that. That's the high note. <laughs> <laughs> I'll agree with the Dean Jagger, 90-year-old dummy falling down the outline. Literally that, falling off a roof a high, on a high note. Yeah, that is, that <laughs> yeah. is a high note. Well, it, technically it ends on a low note because he hits the oh, ground no. eventually, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Well, actually, technically we end on a rather somber note because we get the emotional tribute to bruce lee but yeah we've got 
hopefully plenty of more Bruce Lee movies to come. But I'm curious, do we have any for next episode? Well, let's see. The answer is no, we don't. We have <laughs> we have Hellraiser, i.e. the return of the puzzle box that I teased earlier, Hellraiser, which is available on Shutter from writer-director Visionary, I guess, Clive Barker. And we're following that up with our first Italian movie. Oh, my God. It is Hatchet for the Honeymoon from 1970 from director Mario Bava, who I'm going to call him Mario. You know, some of you Italian people may call him Mario. I don't care. I played video games as a kid. He's Mario. (laughs) Mario Bava, Italian horror auteur. Uh, Hatchet for the Honeymoon, which I got to be honest, I worked ahead. I watched these movies before we ended up recording this. I would have called Hatchet for the Honeymoon a mystery film because I heard it's a Jallo, and I kind of figured all Jallo is a mystery. No, this is, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a Jallo, but it's not a mystery movie. It's a psychological horror movie. So apologies for all our listeners and for you, Jim, if, if, for our listeners, if you choose to watch these movies along with us and for Jim, because I know you have to watch them, we'll go into pretty <laughs> dark territories next episode. These are two pretty dark movies in different ways. Uh, that's that, folks. Thanks for joining us. And I hope if you die young that they make many action movies that kind of feature you <laughs> in them in the future. And on that bombshell, we'll see you next time, folks.